Meyer's writings and mission zeal help inspire the 22-year-old vicar to make many house calls and walk the streets surrounding the inner city church speaking about Christ with youth. Being the batting practice pitcher for the Rochester Red Wings, the AAA farm team of the St. Louis Cardinals helped get attention. During the last six months of his vicarage, almost 100 were baptized through the work of God's Holy Spirit. Youth he had met while taking a course in existentialism at the University of Rochester invited him to speak at some of their functions. Some considered him another Lutheran Meyer, willing to accept invitations from almost any group. The teacher, like some now associated with Logia, was a fan of Soren Kierkegaard's existentialism. The editor was not. The next time the editor met the professor was when both were studying in the library at Washington University in St. Louis. The Kierkegaardian existentialist was then the pastor of a Unitarian church in St. Louis. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Koontz to talk about who else? Herman Otten. Well, that was a fun introduction there. And if you didn't gather, the vicar in question is who else, Adam? Herman John Otten. The editor himself. The editor. With a capital E, it really should be said. And right. um, yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, we've been teasing this episode for quite a while. And uh, now we're going to do it. And, you know, Adam, why why are we doing it? Uh, we're doing it for historical reasons because it'll draw together a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about somewhat disparately in one figure and in his life and in the impact that he had. And also because it's a really good study in why history matters, because he is someone who is not universally defamed, but I would say most often dismissed even by people who wouldn't really be where they are or have the institutions that they do without Herman Otten's work. Absolutely. Uh, but first, where are my manners? How's the weather out there? <laughs> uh, hey, it's uh, it's rainy and, and cloudy and dark in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So uh, the it's, listeners it's, are shocked. It's literally the exact same here. We <laughs> One of us has to move for the sake of weather posting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe people even keep going after the weather posting when it's just you and me. Right. It's like, well, it is it is weather. It is the same where you are, and we are depressed. So. <laughs> at least it's at least it's not too windy today. I can actually record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This uh, this episode would have come out earlier, but what what you can see is that if this episode is finally coming out, also the merch is going to finally come out, and many things about UFOs and cryptids will be revealed. So this is a uh, this is the floodgates are beginning to break on many right. It's go it's going to happen. You're going to yeah. see Word Fitly stickers on laptops and <laughs> cryptid Zelwyn air fresheners. Right. We right. just have to narrow down the scent, which, by the way, Zola not here with us today because um, they got a little bit of rain out in North Dakota and he has a good wallow. Right. Exactly. And he said, for three days and nights, I, I will not emerge. Right. Just just seeking to avoid buffalo jumps at all costs. <laughs> right. So he'll, he'll, he will be back with us uh, momentarily in, you know, in the future. I shouldn't say momentarily, although he has been known to appear and disappear at will. Right. One, one of his many attributes. Right. Yeah. Well, all right. So Herman John Otten, Uncle Herman, we're going to talk about him. Uh, kind of a firebrand, yeah. perhaps even a controversial figure to some people. <laughs> Very controversial. So controversial that he is the star even of books where the author plainly dislikes him. There's a, <laughs> there's a, if you're interested in today's episode, Herman Otten wrote a lot himself. You can find those things from Christian News. But there's also um, a Fortress Press book from about a decade ago called Power Politics in the Missouri Synod. And Otten is a sort of anti-hero of that book. So there's something about how he was and what he did and, and what he said and how he said it that was, I think, magnetic for people, even when they completely disliked what he was saying. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. You know, we, we've talked a little bit about um, this sort of culture of niceness that neuters us a lot of times uh, within Lutheranism. Um, Otten was not part of that. <laughs> he was not part of that. And there are both familial and, and maybe cultural reasons for that. His, his parents, I believe, were both immigrants. Otten himself was born in New York City in 1933. But 
he came from a family that had been very active in free Lutheran churches in Germany. And Tell so, us a little bit about what free Lutheran churches are for the folks. Yeah, no, that's good. I, free means not a state church, so not supported by taxes. So you're sort of paying twice. It's sort of how education works in America. You have to pay for public school. <laughs> no matter um, and what. Then, right. Yeah, and then you can do whatever you want. But in the 19th century, free churches were sometimes illegal. People would go to jail when, you know, disobeying the state's regulation of religion. Um, Grabow, the founder of the Buffalo Synod, is a good example of that. So there's a there's a certain spirit of resistance and very firm attachment to confessional Lutheranism rather than Lutheranism as a merely cultural uh, or ethnic phenomenon that you get in the free churches. And, and Otten's grandfather was a pastor. So although he didn't come from a clerical family, directly in his immediate family. The extended family was very involved prior to his parents coming to America. Right. So they get to America. They come to the uh, beautiful city of New York. Yeah. And uh, what, what happens from there? They become members. Otten's father was a house painter, and he was a member of St. Matthew's, which is still around. It's one of the oldest Lutheran churches in the United States. It's a lot smaller than it used to be. In Otten's childhood and youth, St. Matthew's was a big, bustling place in Manhattan. You still had large German uh, neighborhoods like Yorkville at the time on in Manhattan Borough. So it's a big, it's a big church. It's a successful church, and in one of many ironies about today's figure and story. St. Matthew's is a place where, although Herman Otten's father, who's a very conservative man, is very often the congregational president, St. Matthew's famously would get the smartest, most liberal vicar. Those are often at this time, 40s, 50s, 60s Missouri Synod. That's, that's, that's often the same person by his own account. Uh, the, smartest, <laughs> the smartest, most liberal vicar in that year's class from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. So a lot of the figures who are Otten's eventual theological and political opponents are also people who vickered at his home congregation. Right. And perhaps that does something to, to form him a bit. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, I think it does. I think also the sense that his father, who's a layman, is more theologically faithful and, and therefore probably you could also say knowledgeable than highly educated clergymen is going to affect Otten's evaluation of what is valuable or, or needful in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Something to be said about a strong father in the home. Yeah, big time. And the father uh, is a house painter. His sons, uh, Walter and Herman, go to Bronxville. Rest in peace. <laughs> right. The they former go, Concordia Bronxville. Right. The, former, the school formerly known as Concordia Bronxville. And uh, they go to Bronxville in order to become pastors. That's where they start their, you know, travel through the system. And at, the, at that time, you're talking like early 1950s, you've got your time at your regional prep school, and then you're going to go directly to Concordia Seminary St. Louis for, I want to say, five or six years. So there's no senior college in Fort Wayne yet. And the father, this, a story that, that Otten tells is that his father is painting the house of a Bronxville theology professor, unnamed and gets into a theological debate with Mr. Otten. And Mr. Otten just thinks this guy is crazy, right? So this is probably the 1940s, maybe early right. 1950s. And the professor thinks that Mr. Otten, the, the house painter, is an idiot. <laughs> and the, the Otten boys are both at Bronxville at the time. And so the professor says, well, your sons are very bright, so they must have gotten their brains from their mother. <laughs> so there's also there's also something going on here that is still at this time in the Missouri Synod very clearly a class dynamic between the clergy who generally not only are better educated in some sort of sense of credentials but they also belong to a different social class that doesn't paint houses. <laughs> and then there's Otten who's entering the clergy but both from a within the Missouri Synod context geographically marginal place. Right. And from a place that even within his own home congregation is highly involved, but also in its own way, somewhat marginal. Sure, sure. Yeah. 
And that's not insignificant. Um, right. Do you think that, you know, it, it's probably not quite as pronounced as it was in those days, although there is a bit of that attitude among the clergy today still who want to at times elevate themselves up somewhere, even if they were raised some farm boy, yeah. once they get, once they get the MDiv stamped on their head, right. on their forehead or right. on their, on their, on their hand, they want to, um, you know, they, they want all of a sudden it's, uh, it's fine cigars and they're doing whiskey reviews and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it's, it's something just to keep in mind because anytime that you get, you know, relative, let's say racial or ethnic homogeneity, class dynamics will replace a lot of the sources of strife that you have when you have racial or ethnic heterogeneity, right? So, right. you know, it's very, it's very easy to understand, okay, if I have a white pastor in a black congregation, there's going to be some strife, even just with the community, if not with the congregation, everyone sort of understands that. And it's always, it's always referenced when we're discussing that topic. But we, we pay less attention to, okay, you're a guy that has at least one, if not multiple master's degrees, You've spent your time valuing these things and hanging out with people with these interests. Sure. Go live in this town that has 400 people where everyone is like vaguely related to each other and doesn't live anywhere else yeah. and be happy. Yeah. And, and we kind of, I think, don't pay enough attention to that. It's at least as much a factor, I think, as, you know, being from one part of the country and, and being sent to another part. Sure. Sure. Yeah. All right. So. From Bronzeville, he heads over to St. Louis. Right. So he's going to be there for roughly five years. And what you read in the intro is from his his vicarage year, which is, uh, I'm sorry, that's that's actually sort of his field work. Um, his vicarage is in Rochester, New York. And the, the intro is wonderful because it captures two things about Otten's formation at St. Louis that are really important going forward. One is that... Otten forms himself very consciously in the image of a man who is dead before Otten gets to the seminary, and that is Walter A. Meyer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the idea that you, Walter A. Meyer, also from the urban Northeast, from Boston, not New York, is both conversant with broader challenges to and opportunities within American Christianity, and also fervently devoted to what we would now call semi-ironically dead orthodoxy. He's very committed to the verbal inspiration of scripture. He's very committed to very clear proclamation of the gospel. And there are accents even in that intro that might sound strange to people, but are very, very, very normal, really through pretty much any sector of the Missouri Synod in the 1950s. Like the idea that evangelism is one of the primary things yeah, that, that you would <laughs> that you would go door to door and if you mention door to door today all people will tell you is it doesn't work yeah right which, exactly. which is shorthand for i don't want to do it right people who have never done it say it doesn't work it right. doesn't work right yeah, right <clears throat> yeah things like that or you know they 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 balk at at something like it sounds like it's a boast of you know baptizing a hundred youths or something like that right even though Acts does the same thing. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. And, and and at this time, very much like Acts, I think the Synod Annual is still is still counting congregation members as souls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, what we should really do is, um, who, who wrote the, the soul-winning manual, uh, the Lutheran one? That was P.E. Kretzman. Kretzman, we should do that and, and just blow the world up. You know, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Late 1920s, Kretzman has, you know, kind of that c the conclusion of that book while it is day is salesmanship for the Lord. Yeah, I love it. I, and I yeah. love it because I love the <laughs> because I like to bring it out and watch the apoplexy of the clergy when they see it. Yeah. And, and one of the one of the ironies about this is that P.E. Kretzman is so conservative that he's on the he's on the faculty of St. Louis for decades. And then uh, in the 1940s, so this is prior to Otten, but this is a little bit of a good setup for what we'll talk about in a second. Kretzman says the Missouri Senate has gone off the rails and he leaves and helps to form a micro synod called the Orthodox Lutheran Conference. So see, guys, micro synods, not just for the 90s. That's <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So there are I mean, there are rumblings, definitely, that things are changing in the Missouri Senate. And uh, I mean, while Otten is growing up, and certainly in the Northeast, um, Otten yeah. did not grow up in some sort of Lutheran ethnic enclave. And so that's that's kind of the other thing about that intro that's so great, is that it reveals that Herman Otten is not 
is not some sort of like, he, it's not like he like lived in a cave and then commanded <laughs> everyone else to get into the cave with him. He had been much more broadly exposed to modern currents of thought and in, and to a large degree, modern life. Yeah. Then, then most people his age, certainly preparing for the well, clergy. Of the well, and this is why he, as we're going to see a little bit later in the episode, is so prescient. Right. Um, and, you know, it's funny. Well, like I remember just a couple years ago being at a, a gathering with some clergy and they're talking about the danger of the emergent church which had not been an extant thing for like 10 years at that point. <laughs> right. And and it's like, okay, finger not quite on the pulse, guys. Right. Your your finger's on the tombstone. <laughs> right. And right. so, yeah, I mean, he, he was able to see this coming. And we did have a, you know, certain men at these times who were able to see it coming. But often, yeah. what happens to the prophets, Adam? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, they, they slay the prophets uh, often in front of the altar. Right. So, so tell us a little bit more about his time at St. Louis. Yeah. So eventually he's going to get in trouble, not because of grades or anything like that, but because he he figures out relatively quickly um, before his vicarage year, um, which is the third year, if you're not if you're not kind of familiar with that process, that there is something really off at the very least. And then finally, he figures out it's just it's just flat wrong about especially how his professors talk about the Bible, talking about it as if some of it is imaginary or optional or foreign, culturally foreign, not really applicable to us, that that things are changing. And I, I think that partly his, his background is helpful in allowing him to to see things that guys who are from kind of more central areas whose whose fathers are clergymen might not see. And Otten doesn't have the built-in respect for the professors who are to some extent actually intermarried on that faculty at that time. He doesn't have the sort of, let's just, I can't really think of a better phrase right now than unthinking obedience to the professors because they are authorities. That, yeah. that a lot of the other students, he says, you know, they're going to have because what else? I mean, this is the world that they know. Sure, sure. So the problem that, that Otten gets into is that he begins to talk about this. And this is something to note really almost at any time in Missouri Senate history. Otten's just a really good example of this, is that in a group of a certain size, especially with shifting, but generally at that time, clear, sometimes unspoken uh, definitions for what is okay to talk about and what is not okay to talk about. Otten is talking about things that are not okay to talk about, such as could a faculty member be in theological error? Right. And he begins to talk about this to almost anyone who will listen, which is, I think, one of the, there is a certain, something, something attractive, but also somewhat tragic about his belief throughout his life that if he simply says the truth, enough people will listen. And and I think part of the reason that I use the adjective dismissed earlier yeah. is that he gets treated this way by people who are at one time his friend, but then he says, hey, you're saying this thing that's off. And then they say, <laughs> right. no, no, there's no problem with me. There couldn't possibly be a problem with me. So the problem that he begins to encounter, especially in his fourth year in seminary, is that he is now accusing certain faculty members of being in the error, especially on the doctrine of scripture. Right. Was he correct? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so at the time he's, you know, this is, this is crazy. So we're talking very mid 1950s. I want to say it's 55 precisely is, is going to be his final year, mid 1950s. And everyone is still pretending like nothing has changed at the St. Louis seminary doctrinally or practically. He was, it would turn out, and it would only take, it would take less than two decades to be, for him to be proven completely right. He was totally right. <laughs> the same guys or their handpicked successors who were sure. teaching that the Bible was not inerrant, um, that inspiration did not mean that the Bible was infallible, for example, they would walk out in 1974 and form a new church body that would allow them to, to teach openly and everywhere, what they had taught somewhat privately at the St. Louis Seminary as early as the 1950s. Right. Well, and then we're going to take the first break because the most notable thing uh, that happens to him is is coming up. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. 
A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of a word fitly spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz, and we're talking Herman Otten. Well, Adam, we've already got young seminarian Herman making accusations uh, toward the faculty. Uh, What's ultimately going to result from this? Will there be retribution? Will there be retaliation? Yes, Yes, there will be (laughs) retaliation, and it will last a long time. He will not be certified for placement, so that, that... sounds that 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 sounds and is to some extent like a bureaucratic term but what it what it means is that in order to be placed in a in a congregation of the LCMS you have to be certified by a seminary faculty that's why even distance routes to the pastoral ministry run through one of the two seminary faculties to this day so not certified for placement means not eligible to become a member of synod or or theoretically to receive a call from a yeah and just to be and so just for the for the non-lcms folks so a member of synod would be a pastor or a congregation those are the two things that become those are what make up the members of synod right right and so he's not certified and this does not have to do with his uh, orthodoxy it has to do uh, and I think this is the really historically crucial thing. It has to do with his not being his being insufficiently cooperative. Yeah, which we got to be careful with that one um, because in some cases it's unjust, and in other cases for a seminarian, <laughs> right? It, yeah. it, can, it, it right. can actually make sense. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I think that you see this because you get the adjective uh, pastoral comes to take on notions of being cooperative right going with the flow going with yeah. the flow yeah yeah so he's not certified he never will be certified but he will be called so he's called by trinity lutheran church in new haven missouri that's west of st louis and he will be the pastor there for if i recall correctly 55 years yeah i mean this is like um this is like the waltherian trump card getting thrown down <laughs> yeah it is yeah. it is it is. And it but it, it messes with, you know, processes of synod that have always been there. And so the, there will not there will be repercussions. Um, not only will he not be certified at any point in his career, despite various attempts, but the congregation will also be uh, targeted for removal from synod at various times, always unsuccessfully. Right. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's just you got to love it. Right. <laughs> you didn't follow the bylaws. <laughs> yeah. yeah did, right. you, did you did you file those TPS reports? Yeah. Yeah, they are. They they are TPS reports. And the TPS reports are, are always an index of sort of control and cooperation, which, you know, like you said, there there's a sense in which that's necessary. That's helpful. That's beneficial. That's that's good. There's also a sense in which it's really hard to separate what's happening to him or his congregation from assorted forms of vindictiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's he's the he's now the called pastor at Trinity. He will never be certified. That causes, I believe, the synod actually changes rules after that, right? I don't think we could end up with a synod with a with a situation like that anymore. If I'm not mistaken, I know that we can't. I do yeah. not know. I do not know the dating on that, but I right, know but that. It, but it yeah. appears to be, I mean, pretty much a result of this. It it would certainly seem so. Yeah. 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 No, it was a totally, it was totally unrelated. Yeah. Right. It <laughs> happened in 1916. Yeah. I don't know, but it, yeah, it, it definitely is designed to make sure that you can't have this sort of, 
this is an overused term in secular politics, but this sort of maverick situation. Right. So even if he'd never done anything else, he's already made an impact on the Senate. All right. <laughs> yeah. So the next is going to be the founding of yeah, what, 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 what notable publication? Yeah, the notable publication is now called Christian News, which is a result of its expansion. But when it was founded in the very early 1960s, roughly five to seven years after um, his his call and ordination, um, it was called Lutheran News. And it's a newspaper, it still is a newspaper, and it it, it was designed to publicize and to counter official publications. There, there isn't yet an LCMS reporter, but there are lots of publications of various kinds, bulletins, news sheets, lots of things. Do we have, the, we have the Publicity Bureau at this point, right? Oh, yeah. 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 The Publicity Bureau, which really could be its own episode because it's kind of a fascinating story is from is pre-World War One. Right. So there, there is a, you know, it, it's not unprecedented to have a news source. Right. A news what, source that is not official. Yeah. Right. What is unprecedented is going to be Uncle Herman's approach here. <laughs> yeah. So there is, there, there is, I mean, just the, th- the thing that seems to irk people most in addition to potential copyright violations, okay, which Zelwyn is the copyright expert here, so I can't get, really get into that. But uh, the thing that seems to irk people most is the tone. Yeah. B- because the tone is, is intense, reliably, and it is combative. Right. And it actually just gets more combative as the years go on. <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah it does. It's yeah. Like... Usually you think guys mellow out, you know. No, uh, no. Her, uh, Rotten does not mellow out, no. <laughs> and you love to see it. I love it. <laughs> so, so, um, and and part of it, part of it is is always, and and Otten is, Otten is not, and and nor was Wham like this. Otten is not exactly, let's say, he does not want to be isolated from other Christians. Mm-hmm. So this is you know, anybody that we've been kind of bringing along this far in the episode might be alienated by this. Otten actually finds in the 1945 statement of the 44 validity in critique of our practice of prayer fellowship, because he doesn't see it as, and he agrees with this, with say the the Protestants, the successors of Wauwatosa. He, he, he sees prayer fellowship as not actually the, the practice of only praying with synodical conference Lutherans, has insufficient biblical justification. So for instance, Otten, Otten receives an invitation to preach in the chapel of Bob Jones University. He accepts the invitation on the condition, he doesn't object to praying with Bob Jones in his office, but on the condition that Otten only conduct the service, that no other ministers be involved. So he's he's walking this line of... He which, is, which is something you yeah. saw in Wham's day too. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You did. And because Otten makes the condition to, it's still Bob Jones Sr. who's running the university. He's, he founded it. He's running it. Because Otten says, I will do the service by myself. Bob Jones says, no, we, we can't do that. So Otten refuses to engage in clear instances of unionism, but doesn't find a unionist or a heretic under, let's say, every rock. Sure. So he's, he's, he's very conservative on the doctrine of scripture on the nature of the ministry, he he wants to replicate and to promote Walther's doctrine of the ministry, but he's not, let's say, just averse to change for its own sake. And that's why I love the mention of Kierkegaardian existentialists in the intro, because it, it shows you he's acquainted with a much bigger world than really your average Missouri Synod pastor at this time. And Lutheran News, which becomes Christian News, I believe, in the late 1960s, is a really good example of that because it's always, it's always, it's from Lutheranism. It's talking about things going on in the LCMS, especially what's going to come to be called the battle for the Bible, but it's never just about Lutherans, nor does it, nor does it find only value in what Lutherans do or have done. Right. So he's going to be, begin publishing Christian news or it will become Christian news. Yeah. The Senate is going through changes. Um, specifically, of course, broadly Christianity is too, uh, what is Christian News going to speak to? Yeah, Christian News is going to speak to things that if you you pick up the book, I think the clearest example of this and probably most accessible for our listeners is a book you can you can still get. Walter Meyer still speaks. 
right? Because what Otten is presenting in a in a fashion that is, you know, let's be honest, rather convoluted. Okay, he's not he's not the he's not the clearest writer that has ever existed in well, the world. It, this is a shortcoming of Christian news. Um, yeah, where the article like ends and begins, <laughs> or you know, where or where it continues on the page, even yeah. that's a little confusing. You you so, can't so, foresee it. Yeah, yeah. The, the writing is a little hard to follow at times, but the yeah. formatting uh, does not help. So, no, it's just no. I'm got to be fair here. Yeah, you do, you do. Yeah, and but sort of the the basic thesis of Walter Meyer still speaks, as I as I understand it, is <laughs> is that Walter Meyer's chief opponents, and also the people that then began to be important in the Lutheran Hour. Uh, after his death, are not, in fact, the most conservative people in the Missouri Senate. Right. And I think that he, do you think that he writes Walter A. Meyer still speaks or compiles it rather during the Schultz firing era of Lutheran yes. Hour? Yeah. So it's, it's actually compiled in reaction to another synodical situation? Correct. Yeah. So the, in the, in the debate in the very early 2000s about, Yankee Stadium and and prayer and and all of that. Um, Dave Benke, Otten compiles this book as in a in a fashion that you know, somebody needs to come along and kind of put it together in a, a little more easier to read format. But the basic thesis is that the Missouri Synod has changed radically, and it's not solely a reflection of the doctrine of Scripture, although that was always part of it. So right. the way the way of looking at history of a church or a church body is in the, is very holistic. So Wham's you know maintenance of the Missouri Synod's opposition to birth control of any kind is of a piece with Wham's doctrine of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Whereas those things become for almost all Missouri Synod Lutherans after the 1950s completely separable, and yeah. many try to jettison not just the one with birth control, but the other with the doctrine of scripture. Right. Well, and, um, you know, one of the things he's going to focus on, so you got doctrine of scripture from there. Well, you know, men's and women's roles within the church mm-hmm. and, or, yeah. or even within society, if you will, right. that's something that is, you're not allowed to discuss anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, th- I, th- we mentioned, we mentioned the doctrine of scripture. And so that's, that's kind of his first collision. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't see this at Bronxville. Maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. He didn't see it. The way that he narrates it is he went to seminary very, very naive. Mm. And he and what he learned was that the seminary was not teaching the truth of Scripture and it wasn't teaching the truth about Scripture. Okay, what he comes to see later on and what you can see if you pick up any of the Christian news encyclopedias or you pick up Walter Meyer Still Speaks is that he gains a holistic sense of the threats to Christianity, both from within and without. So that in this in this sense, like the battle for the Bible in the Missouri Synod is one really obvious instance of a larger struggle going on against lots of other things. Right. Yeah. Well, and so we've talked about ecumenism a little bit. Yeah. Um, so just because Otten is open to prayer with other Christians does not make him an ecumenist. No, he's not. He's not, for instance, open to, and it's not uh, prayer with other religions either. No, no, not at all. Um, and he's not open to pulpit and altar fellowship with the American Lutheran Church in the late 1960s, which we then broke off in '81. He also is not open to something that we can, that we sort of take for granted at this point in every segment of life, which is the liturgical movement. Right. Right. Um, and um, is, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, sure. Because this is where our high church guys today don't like Herman Otten because, right. you know, he'll accuse them of being, I think his term was hyper-European. Hyper-Euros, yeah. Hyper-Euros, yeah. yeah. And that refers not, <laughs> not not just to vestments or anything, but but actually to church government right? M- more more properly. But anyway, yeah, he, he, but it's easy to see why he's opposed to the liturgical movement because at, at the time that he's coming up, the liturgical movement is broadly associated with the left-leaning side of the Senate. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. I would say almost exclusively. And, right. And and you yeah. know, uh, just to contemporize this a bit, nowadays, and and this is kind of an insular thing, Adam. Um, our guys are going to think, "Aha, a chasuble means confessional." Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I can submit to you that that is not true. You can see just as much radical leftism in a chasuble in the Senate today. Oh yeah. 
as you can um, confessional Lutheranism in a, in a chasuble. So let's be careful when we judge people based on aesthetics alone. Right. Because a chasuble alone does not an Orthodox Lutheran make. And I would, I'm going to say something even more controversial. A shirt and tie or a polo shirt does not a quote unquote liberal make. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. sometimes I'm getting, I'm getting like a little nervous now. Right. But yeah, right. Well, no, sometimes I'll, <laughs> I'll click on a sermon yeah. from somebody who's not investments, which again, uh-huh. I think you should wear vestments. I, you know, but just for the sake of this conversation. Right. And I'll click on it and I'll be like, okay, this is going to be horrible. And then it's just kind of a standard LCMS Lutheran sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so right. like, okay, so there's nothing really heterodox coming out of this guy. He just, it just doesn't look like uh setting three. Right. Which or is, if, you know, if there's something wrong with him, it's wrong with almost all of us. Yes. Yes. So right. now that I've lost the audience forever, um, I'm just, you, we we've got to be, we, we've got to be, you know, careful about just rushing to these snap judgments because we right. do have good guys in different, in different outfits, whether yeah. we want to admit it or not. Right. And, and if you're going to, if you're listening to where are we at, um, you know, 45 minutes so far about Herman Otten, then I congratulate you because I think that the, <laughs> the idea of snap judgments is applied to this man, uh, maybe more than yeah, almost yeah, anyone else. Yeah. I mean, how many people saw the subject of this and then decided, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to wait till the next uh, monster episode. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's right. But we're we're discussing uh, rare creatures of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod today. So. Right. Yeah. But these are benevolent creatures, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, there's the liturgical mo- movement. Let's talk about uh, pinkos. Yeah, sure. And this is this is a major point of continuity between Meyer and Otten is their public opposition to communism, which again, until you get to about 2020 looks sort of silly to most people. Almost Edu- almost quaint. Yep. Educated yeah. to believe that Joe McCarthy was just being mean. <laughs> right. By the way, Joe McCarthy right about everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> zero, zero things wrong. So um I mean maybe work, work with Roy Cohn, but other than that <laughs> Hey, we've all worked with Roy Cohn at one time or another. <laughs> um yeah, but the the public opposition to communism and not as a sort of like a an aesthetic stance, but as right. understanding that it is the, the basically corrosive force in Western society Absolutely. and education. A lot of people don't know this, but word fitly spoken, despite the fact that I look like Fidel Castro, um, is an anti-communist podcast. Yeah, yeah, completely anti-communist. And so Wham does this, Otten does this. Pete Seeger, who is yeah, actually yeah. a communist, um, is going to be invited. Well, he was. To- He's dead now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now he's somewhere else. Pete Seeger is invited to the Walther League convention in the late 1960s, yeah. and and Otten is one of the the factors in opposing that so publicly, and that's gonna that's gonna lead to the downfall of the Walther League. Right. Well, if you look at some of the publications coming out of the Walther League at that time, it's, it's bad. It's completely <laughs> Whack wild. Up. Completely yeah. wild. Well, and um, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, even you know. Uh, CPH stuff is going to be sure. a little ambiguous on like abortion, you know, at this time, <laughs> right. late 60s, early 70s. Now, the graphic design is completely contemporary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, hideous would be the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely contemporary, hideous. And, and Otten can see this. And so there's a sense in which I mean, when pe- people will use the phrase troubler of Israel without irony, which is strange because <laughs> the Bible uses it yeah. with irony, right? right? Ahab, although he's in charge of the organization, because of his heterodoxy, is the actual troubler. That's the correct right. take. The idea yeah. that, a, that someone is speaking publicly in a way that you find abrasive does not mean that he's wrong or that you don't need to repent. Right. Absolutely. So, all right, so he's going to continue to see um, the inseparability of theological change from political change or social right. change, right? Which, which is a lesson that we need to learn, that if you're doing theology just for theology's sake, it's of no good, that, that the two are so intertwined that theology is supposed to speak to society and not the other way around. Right. And it, and uh, it, t- and it, and it does yeah. even when it's not honest about it. Right. Like, and, and, and today, yeah. though, typically we want that 
we want the social and political to speak to the theological. We do. And I think that's a lot of what is governing um, Otten's alma mater just before the walkout in 1974. Well, let's talk about what's yeah. going on at, at, at the seminary at that Some time. pretty weird stuff. And um, some of this is anecdotal, not not from Herman Otten, whom I never had the uh, the pleasure of meeting, but from folks who were who were students at the time in the early 70s. Some of it, you can find photos. You can find photos of these sort of Vietnam style, the idea of putting up crosses as a sign of protest, but also as somehow linked to people being dead in some literal or metaphorical way was not unique to the walkout. That's that's kind of a Vietnam era way of protesting. So you can see the nexus and you can see it even in how the students are dressed in photos of the walkout, uh, even though because they have a draft deferral because they're theological students. Very few of them could even have potentially been veterans. They're wearing flak jackets or not flak jackets, um, M60s. Um, yeah. They're, they're wearing the field jacket. Yeah. And the let's, field not, ja- let's not, let's not, let's throw stones yeah. here you know, for my, for my end, you know, yeah. I'm always dressed like Travis Bickle. And anti-communist with a, with a, with a, with a communist aesthetic. <laughs> right. They're, they're wearing the field jackets. They are, they're doing things that show you that, that, that they're, the way that they think about the world is mostly filtered through consumption of mainstream media. Shocker. <laughs> Color me shocked. Yeah, right. Uh. The other thing, and th- this is anecdotal, it's kind of a fascinating story, though, is that there's a point in the early 1970s. So this guy graduated in 72. So this would be 70 or 71, probably where the Black Panther Party is invited by a student group, and Concordia Seminary St. Louis is an enormous institution at this time, is invited by a student group to a sort of all-school assembly. And there are all these professors sitting up front. The faculty is also enormous at this time, because this is this is the baby boom. Um, so right. everything is big. Uh, numbers right. are enormous. Big room. They, they pull out the dividers so that they can have enough space. And there's all these people and it's it's the LCMS. So the LCMS is, you know, roughly even today, 98% white. So just a, a room of white people. Okay. And the Black Panthers come in the front of the room and they're just kind of shouting slogans, right? Including four-letter profanities directed at white people generally. Middle fingers, stuff like this at the crowd. The crowd, including the professors, are just cheering wildly. And there's kind of shouting and screaming and speechifying for about a half hour. And then they exit the room in the same way that they came. Profanities, middle fingers, wild cheering and shouting. I mean, this is, this is not, this is a place much more like sort of the Chaz um, than a seminary, as you may (laughs) But Herman Otten is the problem. Right. But Herman Otten is the troubler of Israel. That's right. (laughs) Right, right. Well, on that vivid note, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Coons talking about Herman Otten. Well, it's been a fun uh, walk through those those early years of Herman Otten and then into the difficult years for the seminary and the synod. Yeah. Does Herman Otten still speak? If Walter A. Meyer still speaks, does Herman Otten still speak? Yeah, I think he does. Um, and there are, are a really wide variety of topics 
theological, political, historical, that if you check out the Christian news encyclopedias, especially, you can find. And a lot of LCMS congregations actually have those. My first encounter with Herman Otten was actually, I wasn't even confirmed yet. And I just wandered into the tiny <laughs> church library and these. What, enor- what is this giant folio here? Yeah, this yeah. enormous blue volume bound in a strange way is sitting on top of the shelf. And I'm like, what is this? Because um, <laughs> it won't fit anywhere else. Right. It won't because um, they're ignor- they're They're like old gazetteers or something. And so that's that was my first encounter. And you're going to get an enormous array of topics it's been, uh, over the years, commentary on all kinds of things. Um, you know, international ecumenism, the Lutheran World Federation, all the way down to, um, you know, the American Civil War and what the historiography should be on that. So you'll get pretty much anything. I think the central insight that theological change or preservation is inseparable from political and cultural change or preservation is indispensable. And that's the sense in which I think Otten's legacy uh, in addition to, you know, formatting problems <laughs> it is is worthwhile for us well, today. Well, let's talk about some things that he foresaw that came yeah. to pass. Yeah. And we've talked about, you know, just Concordia Seminary St. Louis. Part of that narrative is very triumphalist, though, for the modern yeah. Missouri Synod. Yeah, the, the narrative is we routed out the leftists, we won the battle for the Bible, and right. all was good. Right. Yeah, and and the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the other kind of major American denomination to shift unusually from being really mainline Protestant back to being conservative, conservative, has a similar triumphalist narrative. The thing that you can see in both denominations is that although the doctrine of Scripture switches back, especially at their most prominent seminaries, St. Louis for us, um, Southern and uh, Southeastern for them, the doctrine of scripture switches back, but, but a lot of things don't. And so something else that happens besides the beginning of John Teachin's time at St. Louis and the election of J.O. Preuss and fellowship at the ALC in 1969 is that the Missouri Synod officially approves at all levels of women's suffrage in 1969. And that's a, that's a new thing. And it's something about which we don't even really talk anymore. It's just sort of taken for granted. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not. Yeah, you're really (laughs) not allowed to talk about it. I mean, I don't think our listeners are going to get, but partly because of my position, somebody could complain about the fact that I'm even talking about it. It's outside the bounds. But the issue here is that women's suffrage is an index, not just of who's going to make decisions about, you know, the parking lot or whatever. It's an index of a certain mainstreaming of the Missouri Synod within American society. Sure. And here's the thing, regardless of where you fall on the propriety of of that issue, the problem, the bigger problem is this. We have taught something as a doctrine of scripture until we voted that it wasn't. Right. Yep. And yeah. so that's all that's puts you on a slippery slope. So you end up with like the Lutheran Church in Australia, who every year or every convention, right, is voting for women's ordination. Right. And every 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 time the vote comes up, it gets a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Right. So so once democracy says it's now the doctrine of scripture, it right. becomes that. Right. And and again, that's not a comment directly on the propriety of women's suffrage at all. It's just to say that once we've once we've started down that path, right, you can you can effectively change whichever one you want if you can get the votes. Right, right, yeah. And I think that when you when you think about it that way, you can see other other indices like this. I think that a lot of the reaction among, let's say, like n- not just to Black Lives Matter, but Lutherans for Racial Justice and and groups like that, both now and also in the time between the seventies and now in the Missouri Synod, these, these, are, these are always indices of confusion, division, and uh, I'm not even speaking uh, organizationally, but, but really theologically here. And because Otten was always calling attention to things like this, it makes it very awkward for anyone whose primary loyalty is not to the truth concerning a particular issue, women's suffrage, race relations, whatever the thing might be, but to a certain organizational line or institutional existence. 
Sure. All right. So, so what else? What else do you think is is going on? Uh, do do we have any any kind of functional ecumenism within the synod? Yeah, I think functional ecumenism involves both certain portions of the Missouri Synod sort of amalgamating to one degree or another. Sometimes mm-hmm. in you know where the pastor will go for you know to learn more about how to do church better with things like the Willow Creek Association, but you get you get a, a further let's say like disarray theologically in the Missouri Synod after the battle for the Bible. So there's a sense in which liturgically and sort of organizationally, the Missouri Synod is never more organized and uniform than in like 1962. Once the battle for the Bible happens, though, even everyone who's left is now going to fracture. And those fractures are things that are going to lead not so much on, say, the right of the Missouri Synod, but in sort of more self-chosen adjective is usually moderate uh, sectors of the Missouri Synod where their ecumenism is not going to be a search for amalgamating into one Lutheran church in the U.S. It's going to be, you know, the the stuff that I read and the conferences I go to are largely put on by, you know, North American sure. missions for the Southern Baptist Convention or Willow Creek Association or whatever the case might be. Sure, sure. So, yeah, it's a... And that brings it into the into their churches, and then their churches begin to to operate in such a right, way. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I think that a little more broadly than that, and this this pertains not just to congregations in this sense, but also to sort of other institutions of the LCMS, colleges, stuff like that, especially, is the idea that Otten will discuss in in many and various ways throughout the years that leftism. An attachment to continual change and revolution, usually phrased, I think, in American terms, in terms of the the ever more intense pursuit of equality. Those goalposts are always moving, but the pursuit of greater and greater equality, those things are always corrosive for the church. Because I think just on the most basic level, the goal of progressivism is progress itself, movement itself, change itself. Whereas change itself is not an absolute good for a Christian. It it could be good, right? Um, we had the example earlier of Otten saying, you know, look, maybe it is okay to pray with your Methodist grandmother, because some of you now have Methodist grandmothers as the Missouri Synod begins <laughs> to speak English. Uh, right. It might be okay to pray with Methodist grandma, and that's a change, okay? But not all change is good, and a lot of change, and I think this is where you see things like birth control or the roles of men and women, respectively, even within the church, let alone in society, those kinds of changes are very important on an, on the level of everyday life for the average congregant in a way that kind of the weirdness of a New Testament professor at a seminary is not. Now, ultimately, that New Testament professor's weirdness is going to impact that person's pastor, right? Obviously, that was that was a wor- that was a worthy fight, but a lot of these other changes are much are much deeper on the level of everyday life. And what they show you is that the church is always caught sort of apologizing for itself, right? Because it's yeah, it's it's not a basically progressive institution. It's it's devoted to guarding the deposit of faith. It's not here to change for the sake of changing. Right. And in order to be steadfast, in order to be planted firm, the church will not keep up, you know, with with current cultural norms if the culture is not Christian in some sense. Right. And that's just what's going to happen. Right. So then in our last uh, half of this segment, um, what can be done? What can we is there anything we can take from from Otten and, and learn yeah, I, I, I think I think this is something that I've hinted at, but I, I think one of the chief lessons is in it is to read widely and, and constantly. You sure. can tell, however, sometimes awkward the formatting might be, that Otten is acquainted not only very broadly with what's going on in the world on any given day, but also with the sources of these things, the sources of existentialism. And it's, and it's an excellent point because we need to be able to engage these people on their own terms. Right. And, you know, even so people who don't agree with our ethos here may listen to the podcast and immediately shut us down because they assume that we're a typical in their, in their, in their terms, a typical, um, you know, ill read 
ill-informed Missouri yeah. conservative Missouri Synod pastors, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and and so that's why we always talk about taking the long road around things. Yeah. So our historical topics, you know, we'll we'll often only get halfway through what we think we're going to. <laughs> but it, but it's part of this philosophy where we want to, you know, really be able to represent them correctly, but we want to understand them too, right? Largely so we can refute. <laughs> but <laughs> right, right. But it's still the right thing to do. You yeah. love your neighbor by reading by reading a bunch. Right. Yeah. And there there is not in Otten the the there is there is a certain intense tone, but there is not a narrowness of mind that I think people expect based on his historical reputation. Right. And it's kind of a, a stereotype. I mean, yeah, it is. And they it confuse is. narrowness of mind with firm and conviction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Having convictions is itself evidence of being unloving, unpastoral. I mean, and you can have convictions, you can have convictions and be narrow minded, right? Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. No, no, but many he, such cases. Yeah. Right. But he's not an example of that. He clearly yeah. has done, done, done the work. Right. Yeah. He has. And something that maybe we'll talk about in the future is this sort of Northeastern Missouri Synod world that is the genesis of a lot. There is a disproportionate number of New Yorkers on both sides of the battle for the Bible out of all proportion to their numbers in the Missouri Synod. So I think that this sort of, and Wham being from Boston, the, the sort of engagement with the world, which is natural when you don't live sort of in inside the Missouri Synod in an intellectual way, is very powerful for good and for ill. Yeah, this would be an interesting presentation to do, especially with, you know, some of these districts, like the Saltwater districts, who are like, well, we just do ministry different here, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, not like the Midwest. And it's like, well, that's actually very interesting. Yeah. You know, so let's actually look at what guys, you know, in, in especially the, the East were doing at the time of the Battle for the Bible on both sides. Right. How the Battle for the Bible was not Midwest versus East Coast, per se. <laughs> Yeah. 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 If you go, if you go to YouTube and you find, uh, Seminex's, the, the actual seminary, not the walkout event, their own video, you're going to hear in an, a really strange proportion of thick New York accents. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's to some extent, uh, a civil war within the Atlantic district, which is the home of Wham and Otten and Teachin and, and lots of other folks. Right. And, you know, we didn't even get, you know, there, there's so much esoteric that we can get into in that period. I mean, we, you know what? We should really do uh, a tree grows in Missouri, the episode Ooh. someday. Ooh. That would be a fun one. Yeah. Uh, nobody <laughs> would listen, but it would be nobody so much fun. Nobody would listen, yeah. but, but we right. would like it. And that's yeah. what matters, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, I, I think in addition to broad acquaintance is also that after sifting these things through scripture, that you therefore... And this is an insight that I drew from Wauwatosa, not so much from Otten, but that the continual reading and searching of scripture makes you exactly as strict and narrow as scripture is, and, and exactly as tolerant and broad as scripture is, so that you can discern the spirits here. You can tell the difference between what is a change that is acceptable. So Otten is very big, obviously, on methods of publicity and public debate and marketing that were very controversial when the publicity bureau in New York began to use them before the yeah. first world war. But you know, he was effective. I mean, he was known as totally something, effective. Of, something yeah. of a kingmaker too. He was. And P.E. Kretzman, whom we mentioned earlier, who was a very conservative man, got in trouble in the 1920s for acquiring a PhD outside the Missouri Synod and for advocating the use of modern child psychology and education to be more effective in teaching. So the, the continual searching of scripture is going to help you tell the difference much more effectively than just kind of trying to figure out what's okay to say in the group I belong to, in the right. group I identify right. with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's okay to um, explore outside the group think sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, for the sake of, you, you might actually learn something. <laughs> and that, and that yeah. theology and in and, and the work of the ministry and the work of being a Christian is not simply saying the right talking points right. to appease your particular circle. Right. And maybe we need to get away from that. Maybe, maybe Otten who went rogue, you know, that's the thing. Would he have gone rogue? Had he not 
had, had he been certified? We don't know. We're not Ooh. given to know. Yeah. But I think that's an interesting, that's an, that's a Harry Turtle dove kind of alternate history. Yeah, style. It is. Right. We should do that. <laughs> yeah. What if the South but, had AK 47s and, and Herman right. Otten were certified? Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing it. I'm working on it now. That's gonna be, <laughs> um, so, but, but it, it's maybe our insularity today is not only like some kind of Midwest stereotyping, but rather it is because no matter which seminary you go to, and no matter uh, who you are as a lay theologian, right, mm-hmm. you're going to get wedged into these little cliques and niches and groups. Right. And you're going to be told, you stay in your lodge. Right. Okay? You're, you're loyal to this lodge. You've made the pledge to this group or that group. <laughs> and so, you know, maybe it's it's okay to talk to people who are uh, who you disagree with. Right. Or, or, you know, maybe 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 you'll find more common ground than what you than what you think. Right. See, I should front load the nice stuff at the beginning of the episode so that people wouldn't get mad early on. Nobody's, if they, you know, they're going to, they're going to get to the middle of the episode and go, these guys are narrow minded and then get right. to here. Yeah, totally. But, I know. I know. Anyway. Yeah. They, they stopped at women's suffrage, but, but here we go. I mean, the, the church is not supposed to function like an alphabet agency. Right. It's not supposed to be secretive and bureaucratic and. But, but, you know, let's, yeah. let's just call a spade a spade here. It, it is. It's become yeah. that. Yeah. And, and, and even on, on the political end of things, it's, yeah. it, there's a lot of, you know, secret meetings and glad handing and people yeah. who want endorsements and things like that, that still go on. Oh yeah. And, and the same people who will say don't politic. Well, you know, people understood though, that Herman Otten's endorsement meant something for a long time. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And, and we're only anti-politics if it's the guy we're opposed to who's politicking. If it's our guy, we don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I will allow my name to stand for office. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah, yeah just yeah. <laughs> this guy's... I, but I'll that vote. guy, that guy, he's campaigning. Exactly. Yeah. I'll vote for you if you say, I want to be this office. I want to be elected to it. Please vote for me. I'll probably <laughs> vote for you because you're honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like I mean they, they make it sound like uh like the Holy Spirit just comes down and stuffs ballot boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. You no, know, so let's just call it what it is. And because that's 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 the system that we have. You and the thing is it's not bad to I don't think personally it's bad to quote unquote endorse a candidate. If right. you say, as a pastor especially, I believe that this man would be a good leader in this position within whatever right. district, synod. Yeah. Even the circuit, even at the right. circuit level, that's a noble thing. That's a noble thing to do. Yeah, and, and we and we don't, but we don't need to tiptoe around it so much. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and I think that people associate campaigning tactics with something that is necessarily bad, and and they don't need to conflate Republican government with you know passing out hard cider to all the voters on election day right um, right you know, which is the, which is the path to pre- the president that is that is the that is the that's the way that old hickory pursued it is that's it is right the that's right way. and i and i mean any presidency <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah. but i think if you're gonna have a certain structure which is necessarily democratic and to some extent republican obviously with small lowercase letters on both those words you have to have public debates you have to have public discussion you have to have public discussion also of men And I think the capacity to evaluate people holistically is something that comes especially from knowing both their personal history and history generally in the, in the intro that you read, the significance that this professor moved from Kierkegaardian existentialism to being a Unitarian minister in St. Louis. He's not putting those two details in there just for recording's sake. Or, He's or doing even it, for some kind of slander. Some, right. It's not, yeah, a, it's it's not, not a slander. Shit. It's a public fact. And it reveals to you that the evaluation of men is one of the most essential things you can have, whether you're talking about yeah. the life of the church broadly or your daily life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, we're at the end of the episode. Any parting words? Yeah, this has been, uh, I, I hope, to some extent, a rehabilitation for some people of Herman Otten, and I hope that you dig into what he wrote. It's also been, I think, an application of one of his central insights about how all truth and people's relationship to truth is related inside and outside the life of the church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, it's fun. Uh, Thanks for doing it. You've been teasing us for a long time. So this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter, at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Coots. God love you and God bless.
Herman John Otten, 86, New Haven, died peacefully at his home April 24th, 2019, surrounded by loved ones. He was born March 3rd, 1933 in New York City, New York, to Herman and Louise Tibke Otten. He was baptized into Christ March 17th, 1933, and confirmed his baptism in the Rite of Confirmation May 25th, 1947, at St. Matthew's Lutheran Church. Herman Otten was a loving son, brother, husband, father, opa, and friend. He was a hardworking, kind, encouraging, and loving sinner saved by Christ through faith alone. He was a proud, patriotic American, but above all else, he was a child of God. He was a true soldier of the cross who loved the preservation of pure Christian doctrine and was willing to speak the truth.